you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Psalm 119, (laughs) verse 169 to 176 in the Tav stanza. In this great chapter of this book, as the series has been titled, Delighting in God's Word, we have come now to the last stanza, and may God plant His eternal Word into our hearts. Verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all of your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we are reminded from the children's sermon how powerful and unstoppable your word is, and that it continues to grow and multiply and build your church. We pray that it would do just that here as we look into it once again. Open our eyes as a psalmist prays to behold wondrous things out of your law. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Well, the psalmist has now come to his last stanza. Letter by letter, he has sung and he has sobbed his way through the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, both praising God's word and praying for God's help in his word. And we find a psalmist again and again that gloom had turned to gleam when he looked through them at the word of God. We find that his triumphs have turned into him singing and praising God's word and his holy name. We find a man that has been so saturated with the wonders of God's word, a word that has been at the heart of his affections and praises. And we also find a man that has been so immersed in his trials and afflictions that only the word of God can deliver him in his greatest time of need. And what has been the pearl that ties the knot of these 22 strings of the alphabet is his delight in the Word of God. The psalmist could very appropriately be described what Spurgeon said of that Puritan tinker, John Bunyan, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. Now he's about to conclude his testimony on the wonders at the word. How do you end a great psalm like this? Part of me wishes that he concluded this psalm in the previous stanza, or at least it will make more sense to me. The Shin stanza ends on a triumphal note. The previous stanza, you recall, with all the assertions of obedience to God's word, he ends in verse 168, I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. It sounds like a great conclusion. After discovering the power and the vitality of your word, its preciousness, its delight, it brings to my soul and light and guides in my path, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. It's a great fitting conclusion. But what we discover in this last stanza is not a declaration of obedience, rather a confession of sin. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Instead of going out on a high, he ends on a low. Instead of triumph, there is a deep sense of humility. 
That is why in this last stanza, it is filled with petitions and pleas. You remember how this psalm, great psalm started. He begins this great psalm on his feet, seeking to walk in his ways. And he ends this psalm on his knees, seeking God's help upon a needy soul. What is surprising to us is that the godly psalmist concludes this psalm with a humble recognition at its constant need of God's grace. I believe that this last stanza will encourage our feeble hearts this afternoon. Because in our verse-by-verse study of Psalm 119, as vicariously as we have placed ourselves in the psalmist's life, desire to live a godly life, we have experienced both the highs and the lows of our Christian lives, sometimes more lows than highs. We have humbly come to know our poor and weak condition so prone to wander and so easily entangled by the lust of our flesh. Now perhaps you find yourself in that place this afternoon. You were at the pinnacle of your Christian experience in your baptism. You were on a spiritual high with new resolutions during our recent church retreat. But that spiritual zeal has waned. You struggle with reading the Bible, fervently praying, You lack the joy and all the Christian privileges and you see them as a chore and your favorite sins that you promise never to commit. You return to it like a dog returning to its vomit. Your everyday worries of life, career, and future has so consumed your vision that you see little of God. Surely every one of us here this afternoon stands in need of God's strengthening grace and we all need this last stanza as a prayer for our own lives that we will be enabled to keep his word. Now there are five pleas I'd like for you to consider as we observe the psalmist's final plea that I hope would, you would make your own prayer before God. The first prayer is, Lord, hear me. The first two verses describe this prayer. Actually, the first half of this stanza can be characterized by this prayer, Lord, hear me. And there is this heavenward movement as he desires for his cries to reach to heaven. Now we've known that the psalmist to, uh, offering many cries and supplications throughout the psalm, but his petition now is that his cries might enter the very presence of God. Now there is a striking parallelism in verses 169 and 170 that underscore his strong desire to come before the Lord. Observe how 169 mirrors exactly 170. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. The psalmist has come back to this theme of crying uh, before the Lord, but also adds that his supplication would come before the Lord. This word supplication is literally my plea for grace. And along with the two accompanying requests for understanding and deliverance, the first two verses mark the desperateness and the earnestness of his prayer. What he is praying heavenward at the very outset of this last stanza is a resounding cry to be heard. Now, if you remember the previous stanza, it closes with a reference to God's presence. For all my ways are before you. The psalmist now opens this stanza with the same sense of divine presence. Twice he prays that his cries and supplications would come before you. Now, in this theological word book of the Old Testament, one Hebrew scholar has defined the word group of the verb come as coming near and the intimate proximity of the object, a way of access. 
What does this mean? It means that the psalmist wanted to get as close to God as to have access to God and so, so as to have his plea for God to be heard and accepted. He wants his cries catapulted into the very immediate presence of God. The psalmist knew that to be near to God was the most wonderful experience, and especially in times of trouble. Being close to God was of great comfort. Beloved, if you are a true child of God here today, the way of God has been opened. There is access to God. We can have greater boldness to enter into the presence of God than even the psalmist. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, the veil was torn and unlimited access has been granted to you. We stand now in the sight of God as Christ is pure and we can have this confidence as confidently as the Son of God Himself. For God the Father is never weary of delighting in His own Son, and so He is never weary in delighting in us. And this access is open. It's open for sinners such as you. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need to stop viewing praying as something we have to do, but as something we want to do and take advantage of this wonderful privilege. It is very possible to pray religiously and pray frequently and pray extensively, and yet not one of our prayers to come before the Lord. Part of it is we pray like the Pharisee that Jesus spoke of in Luke 18 when Jesus said of the Pharisee who stood and was praying this to himself. You see, sometimes we can be like that. We are not at all praying to God. We are praying to ourselves. We love the sound of our voice, how eloquent our prayers are, so we do not pray to God. Part of it, too, is that our prayers do not come before the Lord. It's because we still desire not to forsake our sins. And so the psalmist prays in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And our prayers do not come before the Lord. Part of it is also that our prayers do not come before the Lord because we offer our prayers with doubt, with unbelief. And we utter words of prayer with no expectation that God Almighty is the one we are praying to. And so James 1.6 tells us he must ask in faith without any doubting. And since we have not come to prayer in God's appointed way, we have not really come at all. We must come to prayer like the psalmist whose earnest wish was that his supplication and his plea for grace would once more be admitted to the immediate presence of God. There is this earnestness, this desperation, this contrition in his prayers to God because uppermost in his mind was that the Lord's personal acceptance of his plea for grace. And so we all need to bow down at his feet, draw near to God, and never cease to plead for grace until we feel that our cries and our supplications come near before him. And his two requests, as he longs for his cries and prayers to come before the Lord, is understanding and deliverance. Two themes and two prayers repeated throughout Psalm 119. An older but reliable German commentator, Dalich, points out that the petitions give me understanding and deliver me go hand in hand. Because the poet is the one who is persecuted for the sake of his faith and is as just much in need of the fortifying of his faith 
as of deliverance from the outward restraint that is put upon him. In other words, the psalmist realizes that he needs both the fortifying faith on the inside, give me understanding, as, as well as the outward help on the outside, deliver me. There is no spiritual deliverance apart from the ministry of God's word. And so notice again, he repeats the phrase, according to your word, according to your word. Now, as a psalmist continues his ascent heavenward towards God, he is overwhelmed with the greatness of God and his word. And he seeks to praise both God of the word in verse 171 and the word of God in verse 172. And so his second plea is, Lord, let me praise. In verse 171, he desires to praise the God of the word because of how the Lord has taught him personally. Now, most of us begin by learning God's statutes from others. Many of us begin in children's Sunday school learning the famous Bible stories. We learn about the Ten Commandments. And as we get older in our youth and our college, we continue to learn from various pastors along the way and how the Bible applies in our lives. We then get inspired and we're convicted to read the Bible on our own. We try verse by verse, phrase by phrase, underlining, circling, highlighting, seeking to understand the meaning. And intellectually and logically, it all makes sense, but it hasn't reached our hearts. But one day we pray over the scriptures, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Teach me your ways. And the Lord does something wonderful. He connects his words from your head down into your hearts. And what a day it is when we have the Lord himself as our teacher, seeing scripture as his own words, listening to his voice and having his word guide us and direct us. You know, back in verse 7, the psalmist said, I shall give thanks to you with an uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Verse 171 is the fulfillment of that promise. Let my lips utter praise for you. Teach me your statutes. Now, this word for utter is very picturesque. It suggests the bubbling up. Of to spring forth or to pour forth. And if you were as mischievous as I was growing up, you know the pleasure it brings you when you shake up a soda can, offer it to your friend without him knowing, and your friend opens it up and the drink explodes as a soda spews out. Well, that's the imagery here. The heart's intention of the psalmist was that his lips might become a gushing vehicle for praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God. When we are taught the statutes from God himself, our lips just burst forth with praise. The psalmist then moves from bubbling out to singing out. This time, the basis of the singing is the word of God. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. As the psalmist has praised God for revealing his word to him, he praises God's word because of what it does in his life. It changes him. It refines him and nourishes him. And we who have been changed by the word and by his spirit should be marked by praise and with singing. Consider David for a second. When David was living in sin, guilt has sealed David's lips and sin has restrained him from praising God and from praying to him. That is our experience as well. When we are living in sin, unless we are great actors and performers, it is utterly impossible to, to sing praises to God. 
But what happened to David when he was awakened to a sense of his sin, we see that his lips burst forth in praise and earnestness of his cries. Psalm 51, 12, David writes, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Isn't this the experience of all of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? When the Lord himself has taught me and has revealed his word to me and opened my, my blind eyes to the unspeakable gift of salvation in the Son and made me alive together with Christ, are we not bubbling up with praise and singing the songs and singing the great hymn when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave? But then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. When we consider who we were before our conversion and who I've been since, what I ought to be overwhelmed with is humility and praise. As the converted slave trader John Newton once put it, I'm not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not what I was. This power to teach him and change him from the inside by having his heavenly teacher teach him just burst forth with praise. And beloved, we ought never to lose the wonder of our own salvation. We ought never to lose the awestruck perspective of who we once were and who we now are by the as a child of God. And so let's keep praying. Let my stammering lips utter praise to my glorious God who has the power to save. Well, now, now that the surging tide of his cries and praise have reached heaven's shore, the ebbing tide of God's responses begins in an earthward movement. You see, in the first half of this stanza, you can see it very clearly. There is this heavenward movement as he seeks to communicate with God and the desires and his prayers to come before him. But then in the second half, starting in verse 173 and following, there is a shift of his pleas when he seeks for God to help him on the earth below. And you can see this shift taking place with the introduction of God's hand to help the psalmist. So we see his next plea. Lord, help me. Let your hands be ready to help me. He goes directly to the throne of grace because God's hand is the only hand that can help him. And like God's arm in the Old Testament, God's hand is symbolic for his power and for his strength. And as the psalmist learns deeper into the Lord's character and his word and is lifted up to praise God in the heavens, he realizes very quickly how down below in the earth there are dangers and toils and snares. And if we were to ask him for what reason does he need help, he would surely answer for the entirety of my life. He would surely sing, I need thee every hour. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. And so he prays, let your hand be ready to help me. It's a desperate plea for divine assistance. And now in this verse and in the next, he reveals his motive for help. The reasoning of his expressed desire. It is because he has chosen the Lord's precepts as the one great treasure and the object of his sincerest delight. He says, For I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. I have chosen your 
precepts. This choice, dear friends, is the distinctive mark of God's people. Towards the end of Deuteronomy and the renewing of their covenant, covenant commitment to God, Moses sets forth this choice in these words, Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Those who hear and choose God's precepts are admonished to choose life. Life and death are set before us. And in choosing life, the Israelite would understand the risk of such a choice. For Moses knew what was in the heart of man, their love for ease and comfort, their desire to follow after other gods. And knowing this, this choice, Joshua towards the end also makes, sets forth a choice. He says, if, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the choice of the godly that chooses the Lord and his precepts. And such a choice is difficult. Actually, it is impossible in and of ourselves. For the natural will of our hearts, it's towards evil. Such a choice is hard in light of worldly influences, whether it is pleasure or the fear of men or the weakness of our flesh. But the psalmist has chosen the Lord's precepts. And all the godly who choose the Lord's precepts would hardly agree that to have Christ with all of its difficulties and crosses is far greater than any passing pleasure of the world. Every day, my brothers and sisters, we are confronted with this choice. And we, as God's people, must decidedly choose the Lord's precepts. And the comforting news is that the Lord will never leave us to ourselves. If God has graciously given us the heart to choose, he will also give us the hand to perform. And this is a lesson we must learn again and again, that if we choose the Lord's ways, we must daily learn this lesson. Without me, you can do nothing. And in our helplessness, we will often breathe this prayer, let your hand be ready to help me. His next prayer and his fourth prayer is, Lord, satisfy me. And in verse 174, the psalmist comes back to some familiar territory and speaks in the language of longing and delight. This longing marks the character of true Christianity. Not merely duty, but delight. The psalmist here says, I'm longing for your salvation. Now, most commentators that I've read on this verse interpret the psalmist longing for salvation merely from his enemies. That is his physical enemies. But I believe the psalmist had meant more than this. Because as he pursued the Lord, he saw the sin in his heart. He saw the power of sin that was lurking all around him. And he wanted the Lord's salvation to deliver him from the power of sin and from the evil influences around him. And this longing for the Lord's salvation is obviously someone who is near unto God and who habitually comes to have communion with him. Now, Christian, I want to remind you that salvation comes to us in three tenses. I have been saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. I have been saved is a reference to our conversion. It refers to that great act 
When a man in Christ is forgiven of all of his sins and comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I am being saved. It's speaking of our present state. It refers to our pilgrimage and God's keeping us in this fallen world. I will be saved. Looks toward the future. Referring to that great and holy day when God shall give us new and glorified bodies like the body of our Lord Jesus. As John writes, we, we know that when he appears... We will be like him. For now, Romans tells us, salvation is near to us. When we believe, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Salvation that refers to the totality of our experience that delivered us unto Christ, that keeps us in the faith, and that someday we will be presented faultless and blameless before God in the final judgment. Salvation then is not something we look back once in our lives. When we were saved, but we continue, we continue and long to look to the Lord for his salvation, both in the present and in the future. Charles Bridges, towards the end of his 500 page commentary on Psalm 119, asked concerning this verse, is not this an object for the longing of the soul that feels its own pressing once and sees in this salvation an instant and full supply? Listen, it is an alarming sign for the Christian when there remains no longing for his salvation. It is an alarming sign for the Christian when our love for him decays and we no longer desire or seek him. It is much like the typical husband who gets married full of love, full of joy and desire for his newly wedded wife. And he tells his wife he loves her every day, gazes at her beauty, He is keen to her needs and desires, savors every waking moment with her. But over time, his warm and intimate love becomes cold and businesslike. Now he only tells her he loves her on special occasions. Rarely does he tell his wife she is beautiful, and seldom does he wine and dine her. If this longing for the Lord's salvation has severely diminished, let us repent of our first love. And do the deeds you did at first, never resting until we are able to say, I long, I long for your salvation. And Christian, did you notice that the psalmist's longing for the Lord's salvation is grounded upon his delight in his law? Delight in God's salvation and in his word go hand in glove together. Longing for salvation will always get us deeper as one habitually delights in God's law, which in turn will enlarge the desire for the full enjoyment of salvation. One of the lessons we've been learning in our series in Psalm 119, titled Delighting in God's Word, is that the way you treat your Bible is the way you treat your Lord. I hope that our Lord is worth more than five minutes of your day. I hope that our Lord brings more delight than a 30-second YouTube clip. I hope that our Lord is more precious than any material possession or hobbies or even our family. The way you treat your Bible is the way you treat your Lord. That is why there is no greater insult to our Creator than to neglect His written Word. And conversely, there could be no more greater honor to God than to delight over it. Now, as our salvation is near to us when we first believe, what a necessary prayer this is for for us. Lord, satisfy me. 
create in our souls a, a yearning for your salvation, a more fervent, a more, more deeper desire for your law. Now as the psalmist continues to make his descent earthward, his last plea is, Lord, seek me. Now these last two verses are grouped together for the psalmist's need for the Lord to once again help him. But as you know, the psalms were originally composed for singing. And so if you are musically inclined, this last stanza would be very strange to play on an instrument or to sing because the psalmist keeps switching keys. He begins on a minor key with a pair of prayers that expresses his desperate cries. But then he shifts to a major key in the next two verses as he's bubbling up with praise. But then he shifts back into a minor key, right? Verse 173, let your hand become my help. And so he expresses his longing for God's salvation. And then mid-verse, back into the major key. Your law is my delight. And then beginning in verse 175, he's back to praising God. Let my soul live that it may praise you. And then back to the minor key. And let your ordinances help me. The psalmist cannot make up his mind. He switches back and forth from praises and prayers. But friends, is not this the authentic experience of our Christian lives. And this tension is none more clear than when we get to the last verse. Now we come to the last verse of Psalm 119 and we are somewhat shocked and surprised by what we find the psalm is saying. Many commentators have been puzzled by this verse and some have been so critical that they even try to revise it or delete it altogether. One writer has said, it seems that 95% of Psalm 119 was divinely inspired, but in this last stanza, the inspiration just ran out. Well, after all, could the psalmist, who has throughout been expressing such godly and holy aspirations of his own life, utter these words, I have gone astray like a lost sheep? Has not the psalmist time and time again pointed to his own life as a faithfulness of God's own intervention? And even beyond that, did he not say in verse 110, I have not strayed from your precepts? How is it that this man, who is almost on the verge of heaven, a man after God's own heart, seek himself to the lowest dust of the earth, found wandering from his God? One would think that after 175 verses devoted to the word of God, that this psalmist would have ended on high. That's how I would have ended this psalm. After writing 22 stanza, 8 verse section, acrostic about the word of God, I would have said, Look what a great Bible scholar I am. I've, I've thought long and hard about the Bible, and I want you to see the evidence in my own life. And I want you to show through my experience and that living a victorious Christian life is matched by my composition of this intricate psalm. I want you to see not only the greatness of the Word of God, but what also it can do in my life. But it doesn't end this way. It is a brutally honest confession of his weakness. What we see in this tension is this instructive lesson that has bridged the entirety of these 22 stanzas. Namely, that the child of God may be seen exerting himself, but is never observed trusting himself. There are reasons of this, of course. The further we get along in the life of faith, the more we realize the evil and the treachery in our hearts. The older and the more advanced we get in the Christian life, the more we see the believer's life is conflicted to the very end. Knowing this, you see, helps us to realize that perfection in life never comes until death. 
And that growing in godliness and Christ-likeness are never over. Therefore, we are to keep growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This humble psalmist knew this to be true in his own life. And so in these 22 stanzas, he keeps pressing and desiring and seeking to know the Lord. But the closer he draws to the Word of God, and more importantly, the God of the Word, he sees with deeper insight the sufficiencies of God and at the same time, the insufficiencies of self. Notice, we also see this contextually in this last stanza alone. I mentioned earlier that the stanza is structured in two halves. The first half is this rising tide towards heaven. And then the second half tells us of this, of this ebbing tide toward earthward. That tells us that the closer this psalmist was at the gates of heaven, as near as one could be near to God, the more clearly he saw his poor condition and the divine help he needs from God. Listen to what Spurgeon says of what he discovered. The psalmist is approaching the end of the psalm and his petitions gather force and fervency. He seems to break into the inner circle of divine fellowship and to come even to the feet of the great God whose help he is imploring. And then he says, this nearness creates the most lowly view of himself and leads him to close the psalm upon his face in deepest self-humiliation, begging to be sought out like a lost sheep. And so the psalmist ends on a note of humility. He confesses that he has wandered from the shepherd of Israel, and that his ways are not yet in line with God's ways. And there are two very important lessons that I would like to draw from this last verse. Number one, by nature, we are all lost sheep. It's the nature of sheep to stray. Likewise, it is the human nature to go astray. No one has to take a course in theology to know that. Our sin nature is bent that way. Now, it's not as if we deliberately make up our minds to neglect our daily quiet time, the place of prayer, the fellowship of God's people. We just allow crowding concerns of everyday life to take a greater priority, and we do what comes naturally. We stray. But we think that as believers... That our wanderings is not so much the wandering of sheep, but as the wandering of a pet dog. Now, some of you have pet dogs, and though not as dumb as sheep, at times you may look at your dog that way when he runs off and chases a squirrel or runs off and barks at other dogs, right? And although your dog will run off, he will eventually come back in the end on his own. And see, we think we are like pet dogs, that though we have wandered away a while, We'll found our way back on our own. How foolish for us to think that. How prideful of us to think that. You and I can go out on an inspiring Sunday service, our thoughts full of the wonder of God, and within seconds, we find ourselves snapping at a member of our family, complaining and grumbling about what we don't have, turning the good gifts of God as idols in our life, lusting after someone or something we shouldn't. Within the best of us, there is this propensity to wander from our Lord, from so kind a shepherd, from so rich a pasture. Calvin is so right when he comments that such is our liability to err, that we immediately relapse into sin the instant he leaves us to ourselves. By nature, we are like sheep. And left to ourselves, we will go astray. Unless, beloved, the shepherd seeks us. There is then this very second important lesson I want you to note. A strong awareness of frailty 
and reliance upon God's grace. We are all by nature lost sheep. And what the psalmist is saying, that this is not, uh, this, is a, this is only the right description of himself apart from the grace of God and deeply aware of his weakness, he knows that as a lost sheep, he could never find his way back to God. The shepherd must find him. And so he prays, seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. He says that I will go astray unless you seek me. I will never seek you unless you first seek me. And without the hand of the good shepherd watching me every moment, I will go astray. If you leave me unwatched for even a nanosecond, I will leave the path. I will not come back by nature. The blessed truth, however, is that although a straying sheep, the psalmist has said he is still a sheep, the Lord's sheep. And in this, he looked to a shepherd and prayed, seek your servant. The psalmist, as he stored up the word in his heart, must have remembered Ezekiel 34, 11, when the Lord says, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And so he prays, seek your servant, a poor Lost, weak, sinful sheep, yes, but still a servant of God. What a blessing this is for us who are God's servants, that even though my heart wanders and I go further and further away from home, yet I'm still his servant. I am the Lord's sheep, and he is the good shepherd and finds me precious in his sight. Jesus says in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing Without Christ and the grace of God, we are nothing. We are lost sheep. Yet Philippians 4.13 tells us we can do everything through, through Christ who gives us strength. We need to remember, beloved, that there must be a firm reliance upon the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The psalmist confesses this last verse from a broken heart. And he takes his stand, not with the self-congratulating Pharisee of the parable, but with the publican who stood up far off, crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, how should I end this sermon and this study of Psalm 119? This chapter ends with a broken-hearted confession of a lost sheep, but it opens the door to the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. I end with Christ Jesus, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. The psalmist ends this great psalm by pointing to Christ in this confession of sins. For he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And it is Isaiah 53, 6 that tells us all of, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the wonderful news is what comes after. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And what's more is that when the sheep are lost, the shepherd hunts until he finds them. Did not our Lord say that if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when the Lord has found his lost sheep, does he not joyfully then lay the sheep on his shoulders? The value of the whole race of mankind is as nothing to him but as that one sheep that is lost. There is a world of holy angels that are of the 99 sheep, but yet God sends his son to seek and to save that which is lost. And if you are not a Christian here today, you are lost. But I want to point you to Jesus, the great shepherd 
who has laid down his life for his sheep. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ cares for you like you would never know. It is our good and great shepherd, Jesus Christ, who has promised to us, my sheep will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our great shepherd of our souls, we confess like the psalmist that we all at one time or another have gone astray like a lost sheep. We confess how prone our hearts to wander and to leave the God we love. We confess too our prideful arrogance in our hearts that we believe that we can come back on our own strength and our own willpower. Forgive us, O Lord, and cleanse us of all of our iniquities. And if we have strayed far from you here this afternoon, have mercy on us. May you seek us and may your rod and your staff yank us back into the paths of righteousness. And O Lord, restore to us the joy of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.